Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 19th. I'm Anastasia Glova, and I'm sitting down with Jean Healy, senior editor of the Cato Institute and co-author of the Cato study, Power Surge, the Constitutional Record of George W. Bush. Jean discusses how posterity has come to view past presidents and concludes that wartime big government presidents have been unquestionably more popular among academics than their quieter counterparts, even when controlling for party affiliation. The president's just suffered a massive public rebuke, and his approval rating is still in the 30s. So how do you think that history will look back on this administration? Well, I think the administration has been an absolute disaster and that President Bush has been a failure on almost any dimension you could think of. So I would like to think that history is going to make a similar judgment, but I'm not so sure. If you look at what historians are saying now about George W. Bush, it's pretty clear that they hate him. History News Network did an online poll of historians, kind of informal, but 81% of them said he was a failure. You had uh, Sean Wilentz, who's a historian at, at Princeton. He did a big story for Rolling Stone magazine suggesting that George W. Bush was the worst president ever, which is a pretty sweeping historical judgment. I mean, you know, what about Woodrow Wilson or any number of presidents you could name? But I think one way to figure out how history might judge him is to look at the first thing that most people look at when they want to find out how historians judge presidents. And these are these perennial rankings of presidents. You've probably seen them. They survey a bunch of historians and they rank the presidents in order from best to worst as a result of these surveys. And if you look at those surveys, you, you find that some of the presidents that win, or most of the presidents that win actually, are presidents who, you know, are the nation builders and the war leaders. Uh, historians don't really seem to like presidents who stick to their constitutional role and keep the peace and just keep faith with the Constitution. If you read Wilentz's article, Sean Wilentz's article, he is criticizing Bush for launching unnecessary wars and trampling the Constitution and civil liberties. And I agree with him there. But like I say, if you look at the historians' polls, you see something different. And historians have actually acknowledged this. One of the couple of the most famous polls were by Arthur Schlesinger Sr. And looking at one of the results of one of his surveys, he summed it up by saying that mediocre presidents believe in negative government, in self-subordination to the legislative power, while great presidents, quote, left the executive branch stronger and more influential than they found it. So it seems to me a pretty perverse way to judge historical greatness among presidents. But it persists. His Schlesinger son, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., conducted a very famous one of these surveys in 96, and he got very much the same results. Uh, five of the top ten presidents were war leaders. So you have people like James K. Polk, whose major distinction is a war of conquest, Woodrow Wilson, who brought us into World War I, even though he promised that he would keep the peace, and Harry Truman. Harry Truman is perennially a top 10 president. He launched our first major undeclared war, and he had to be rebuked by the Supreme Court because he claimed that he had the power to seize American companies as commander-in-chief. So all that being said, some of the things that people are criticizing President Bush for now perversely enough, might actually stand him in good stead when passions cool down and future historians look at him to evaluate his historical record. 
Well, it's not really surprising that given that most academics are liberals, they're going to favor presidents like Wilson, FDR, and Truman. Yeah, that's a good point. But what's interesting is that when you correct for political bias, you find out that you still get the same results. In 96, a lot of people were unhappy with the Schlesinger poll. A lot of conservatives were unhappy, mainly because Reagan didn't do as well as they thought he should. So in 2000, the Wall Street Journal and the Federalist Society did their own poll, and they sought out conservative scholars, and they tried to explicitly balance it. And except for Ronald Reagan moving up a number of places on the poll, you got almost identical results. And when they broke it down among party affiliation, as they did in their most recent Wall Street Journal Federalist Society survey of presidential scholars, you find out things like that FDR is the fifth greatest president in conservative eyes. Now, this is just weird. You know, here's FDR, the court packer, the man who locked up over 100,000 innocent Japanese Americans. He's a hero to conservative scholars. And it goes beyond just historians. You, know, you see it in the professional pundit class. When people are debating the Bush legacy now, they talk about, is he the proper heir to Harry Truman? And the assumption is that Harry Truman is someone that people should emulate. Well, Harry Truman was a, a nasty little autocrat. He actually, in 1946, when he was facing down a railroad strike, he went to Congress to demand the authority to draft strikers into the army with no constitutional authority whatsoever. Apparently, he said, we will draft them and think about the law later. This is what the political culture, unfortunately, tends to reward. So in your estimation, who are the presidents that a healthy political culture would value? I think there's something to be said for presiding over peace and prosperity without messing it up. And this is something that political elites and historians and pundits don't tend to value enough. You can take uh, Warren G. Harding, our 29th president. He's a national joke. He finishes dead last in the Schlesinger poll and next to last, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal Federalist poll. And he gets criticized justifiably because of the corruption in his administration, even though there's no credible allegation that he was actually profiting from it. He just had bad taste in friends. But he did a lot of things right. He presided over the dismantling of Wilson's wartime controls on the economy. He had a, ushered in an era of prosperous normalcy, that word that he coined for peace and prosperity. He was also a little bit of a, a civil libertarian in his own way. The Wilson administration had locked up a lot of people for peaceful dissent. One of them was Eugene Debs, the socialist presidential candidate. And Harding pardoned them, even though his administration, his advisor, said, no, don't do this. But Harding said about Debs was, look, I want him to eat Christmas dinner with his wife. So Harding, I think, is someone that, that historians should value a little more. They should also value Calvin Coolidge more. Calvin Coolidge, again, because historians like drama and like action, Coolidge does pretty badly in the polls because he slept a lot, he didn't do enough, but he kept out of the way and he kept the roaring 20s roaring. And by the way, when it comes to Coolidge, Ronald Reagan actually knew better than the historians did. Early on in his administration, he had Coolidge's portrait hung prominently in the cabinet room. And he said, you know, you hear a lot of jokes about how silent Cal Coolidge didn't do much, but the joke is on the people that make the jokes. Reagan said, we had probably the greatest growth and prosperity record we've ever known under his administration, and I have taken heed of that because he did nothing. Maybe that's the answer for the federal government. 
That may be a boring answer for historians, but I think it's a good answer when you're talking about what the proper role of government ought to be. If wartime presidents have been popular in posterity, did that popularity accrue over time? Because now we're talking about a president who is unpopular right now. Is it that ten years later suddenly he's going to be a national hero? Well, that does happen sometimes. I mean, Truman was terribly unpopular when he was actually president, and it took the posthumous judgment of historians further down the road to rehabilitate his reputation. Coolidge and Harding were wildly popular at the time. It may actually be that people who have to live under these administrations may actually have a better idea of how good a job the president is doing. The bias for historians is they want something interesting to study. It's true. Wars on poverty and new deals and new frontiers and real wars, those are way more interesting. But uh, there's a Chinese curse that goes, may you live in interesting times. The people who actually have to live under these administrations are not always as happy with it as the historians are 10, 15 years down the road. Given that, what kind of a president do you think we're going to get in 2008? Well, it doesn't look so good if you look at the people who are the front runners. On the Democratic side, you've got Hillary Clinton, and she's someone that is interested in creating interesting times. She wants to improve your health, and maybe she wants to save your soul. She gave a famous speech early on in her husband's administration where she talked about how America suffered from a sleeping sickness of the soul, and we needed the ability to, quote, define who we are as human beings in this postmodern age. Uh, I don't know what any of that means, but I know that it's not any of the government's business. And on the Republican side, it doesn't get any better. You've got John McCain, who's a, a man who worships Teddy Roosevelt. McCain's an enemy of the First Amendment. He's a big fan of national service programs. And he's probably the most prominent elected official who believes in what they call national greatness conservatism, which is a philosophy that says we're only a great country if the federal government's doing great big things, preferably waging war. So if you look at the people who are in the front ranks of the contenders, it doesn't look so good. On the other hand, by that point, we'll have had eight years of a president who's announced that it's his job to, quote, rid the world of evil. And as of right now, people are not that excited with that sort of ambition and its results six years into it. So it could be the case that people are, the electorate will be ready for a more modest and less ambitious approach to the presidency. I hope that's the case. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.